Welcome to Dog Boy Adventures, a podcast about the superhero book series by Bill Meeks. That's me. Dog Boy, a.k.a. Bronson Black, is Colta City's 13-year-old superhero. In Dog Boy Adventures, he solves crimes, fights bad guys, and searches for the answers behind his strange powers. Let's get started. Hi, everybody. This is Bill Meeks. Long time no speak. I just wanted to let everyone know that I have a new Dog Boy adventure out. It's called Dog Boy Demon's Dare. I, I could sit here and read you the blurb from the back of the book, and we could have a lot of fun. But instead, why don't I have Nathan Beatty, the reader for the Dog Boy audiobooks, go ahead and, and read it in a kind of fun, dramatic uh, style. Curly World closed down years ago, but the rides are still running. To step inside is to step out of time into a kingdom of magic, surprises, and thrills. Dog Boy follows a trail of abducted children to the gates of Curly World, where the general amusements hide a dark secret he was bred to uncover. How will he answer the demon's dare? (laughs) dog boy demon's dare by bill meeks available on amazon ibooks google play and at dogboyadventures.com yeah so it's a book I, i i really really love it it's probably my favorite thing i've ever written if you like amusement parks if you like stories of children in jeopardy if you love swamp wizards and magic and weird comic booky kind of stuff, you're going to love this book. I kind of have been describing it in my head as either Grant Morrison's Tom Sawyer or Mark Twain's Animal Man. It kind of uh, walks both of those lines. As far as the amusement park stuff, I've had a lifelong love of roller coasters, amusement parks in general. And so I, I brought a lot of those influences into the book. You can go over uh, to the Dog Boy Adventures website, dogboyadventures.com, to see a big blog post that I wrote up about all of the rides that influenced it. I, I even have pictures of the map I created to work from uh, when designing Curly World, the theme park that's in Dog Boy Demons there. Uh, but I just wanted to mention a couple of the big influences here. Uh, one of the rides, uh, the, it's a big uh, plot point, uh, centerpiece, I uh, kind of uh, leads takes us into like act two and a half to act three. Uh, it's called the Cyclotron. It's this big spinning ride uh, that Osbert, uh, one of the members of the Den- or the Guild of Thieves, uh, puts a bunch of children on for some weird science experiment, right? Uh, but I, it's based on a ride from Kennywood Park in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, called the Rotor. It was there uh, the first several years I went to Kennywood, and we lived uh, close by, so I usually went once or twice a summer. And it was it was always fun because, one, it just sp- it spins you around, and then it drops the floor out from under you. But because you're spinning around, the centrifugal f- force holds you up against the wall, and you stick to the wall like Spider-Man or something. And it, it was always fun because it held a lot of kids, so you could just run around and get right back on the ride. So uh, the Cyclotron was based on the rotor. And uh, then there's a fun house in the book, too. Uh, they, a, couple, a couple of different uh, action-y kind of set pieces take place and called The Castle. And it's based on uh, Le Cachot, I believe it is, or Cachot. 
I, it's French, uh, which literally translates to the castle uh, that was also at Kennywood Park. It got torn down in 1998, but I took some of the uh, the imagery for it, the castle uh, stuff, and I, I, I saw it a few times because there were problems. It was an old ride. There were problems with it. So I thought, saw it a few times with the lights completely on. So I felt I could, I could very confidently kind of write about going through that shape of a thing. But there are also elements of like the Haunted Mansion from Disney World and, uh, you know, a few other uh, – there's a – I forget the name of it off the top of my head, but Six Flags Georgia, uh, Six Flags Over Georgia, which is right down the road from us. There's one uh, the, a fun house that's kind of based on puppets and stuff that's kind of creepy and fun, based a little bit off that too because that's the most recent one I've been on. And uh, finally, uh, there the Demon's Dare roller coaster that uh, the – that the the big climactic battle between Dog Boy and the the guild members the the Guild of Thieves members takes place on is called uh, Demon's Dare and it's based on the first roller coaster at least p- partially based on the first roller coaster I ever went on called the Ultra Twister at Astro World. I now it, the first time I ever went on I think I was eight years old and we just ran once the park opened we ran straight to the back straight to the Ultra Twister which was the new hip ride that they were advertising on tv and we hopped on and uh, it was a 90 foot hill the f- the first hill was 90 uh feet i i upped that to i think 120 or 180 feet in the book itself but just like the feeling of going up and uh you know the shaking and the rattling and there's a youtube video of it uh, that i included in this blog post at dogboyadventures.com if you want to check it out but it just terrified me it was one of the most terrifying things I could think of, so I thought it would be a really great setting for the final battle in Demon's Dare. On Demon's Dare, in fact. And uh, it was also – the scale of it was based more on the Texas Cyclone, which uh, was a roller coaster at Astroworld that sat right next to the Ultra Twister. So I kind of like meshed them together in my head. And uh, yeah, but – you know, you can go to dogboyadventures.com to check all that out. And Nathan Beatty, who read the blurb just a couple minutes ago, he's also doing the audiobook uh, for Demon's Dare. It should be out sometime in September, right around the time uh, the next Dogboy book, Eye of the Scarab, comes out. That's going to be a fun one, kind of a techno thriller, and really veers us very hard into the uh, the last act of the Dogboy story. I, I will say that there, there's a break that happens between the next to last and the last chapter in Den of Thieves. If you remember, there's a time break. About midway through Eye of the Scarab, we close off that, that, that break, and we pick up right at the marriage press conference, right when the, uh, the Cult of City Shadows, the superhero team in the hovercraft, come and abduct the mayor. So we're going to find out, and that all gets resolved in this next book. The whole mayor plot line gets resolved in this next book. So uh, you guys will have a lot of fun with that. But yeah, uh, the audiobook uh, by Nathan uh, will be coming out then. I'm going to go ahead and play you the first two chapters because he sent them to me. Uh, so I figured I'd go ahead and uh, play you the unfinished version of those just to g- uh, give you an idea of how it's going to sound. And then I'll also, I realized I never put out the, the retail sample for Den of Thieves, which he finally finished up a couple months ago, um, out on the podcast feed. So I'll go ahead and follow up with that, and uh, then we'll just go ahead and fade out of here. But uh, if you want to pick up the book, it's bit.ly slash demonsdare. You'll get a link to all the different versions of it over on dogboyadventures.com, or just go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, 
iBooks and just search for Dog Boy, uh, Demons Dare, or Bill Meeks. Either search should (laughs) get the book pulled up for you. But thank you, and we'll see you next time. Dog Boy, Demons Dare, Dog Boy Adventures, Book 3. Written by Bill Meeks. Narrated by Nathan Beatty. Chapter 1. The Professor, the Fighter, and the Cowboy. Osbert bounded down the alleyway as fast as his stubby legs could carry him while he shoved a piece of baguette in his mouth. Hot John, a bulky man with a mallet where his hand should be, ran ahead of him, carrying a plastic garbage bag over his shoulder. Hey, I think this soup's got a leak, Hot John said. Of course it has a leak, Jonathan, Osbert said. It's leak potato soup. So it's supposed to leak, Hot John asked. Glad to see our time on the run hasn't changed you, big and dumb as ever. Guess you know best, Hot John said. You took care of me so far anyhow. He turned around, white goo dripping down his back. Think you can wipe it off, though? A police car pulled up at the end of the alley. The siren chirped. Red and blue lights spun around on top. They turned their spotlights on the two thieves. This is the Colta City Police Department a voice said, over a speaker mounted to the top of the police car. We know you guys what stole food from Grace Cathedral. Leave it there and put your hands up, then walk towards the light slowly. No screwing around. You heard the man, Jonathan. Put them up, Osbert said, lifting his husky arms above his head. Hot John smiled, then ran at the lights, rearing his mallet hand back to strike. Stop or we'll open fire, the policeman yelled, but the threat of violence had never stopped Hot John. He screamed like a trapped lion, jumped over the car, and hit the cop upside the head in the time it took him to finish his warning. Hot John giggled like a schoolboy as he smashed the spinning lights. Well done, old friend, Osbert said. Let's continue on our mission. There are no policemen where we are going. But I kind of like smashing them, Hot John said. And smash you shall, but only in service of the guild, Osbert said. They continued on their way without incident eventually arriving at a closet-sized metal building tucked back in the wall's recesses. The door read, Danger, Electric Shock Risk, Authorized Personnel Only. A copper-colored deadbolt hung on the tarnished metal door. Uh, I think this is the place, Hot John said. Well, then, by all means, get us in there. I'm positive. If I can find my old notes, we'll find a way to rescue our comatose chairman. Who? Hot John asked. Andrus, Osbert said, his thick glasses magnifying his sullen eyes. The device I've developed will help us find our dear Andrus. You haven't forgotten him already, I hope. Oh, oh, okay, I got you. Yeah, of course I remember. I know I ain't too smart, but I remember pretty good. Hot John slammed his mallet hand against the padlock, sending it clanging to the ground. He opened the door revealing a narrow ladder that led down into the darkness. The men found navigating the narrow shaft a challenge. Hot John's shoulders were far too wide. Osbert's middle was similarly disadvantaged. They squeezed down the hole as best they could. Osbert plopped onto the dirt at the bottom first, listening to the distant sounds of the river as they echoed through the tunnel. He pulled out a pen-sized flashlight, twisting the tip to turn it on. The beam cut through the fog, to reveal a long subway tunnel, or the remains anyway. The metal rails were gone, salvaged to sell for scrap decades earlier. The wooden ties remained, 
putrid, dark green moss growing around the sides. Hot John pulled a broken piece of white fiberglass from the soft dirt. He wiped it off, revealing the word Stonehouse in stark black letters. He handed it to his companion. We aren't here to dig through the dirt, Jonathan, Osbert said, then tossed it aside. He pulled a compass from his pocket, then turned around in a circle until he faced southeast. This way, he said. The men walked down the tunnel for several minutes, eventually coming to a cavern with an abandoned subway car. Wisps of smoke floated off a pile of embers on the ground, a fire clinging to the last of its heat. I remember this place real good, Hot John said. This is where Andrus put Blaze after, you know. It was an unfortunate fate that befell our dear friend, Osbert said. Would that he were still with us. We could certainly use his mastery of weapons in our endeavor. How unfortunate Dogboy let him go. The subway car shook, and a low groan echoed throughout the cavern walls. Osbert shushed his partner, then pushed him out in front as they crept up to the car. Empty potato chip bags and soda cans were piled around the door. Osbert gestured for Hot John to lean down, then whispered in his ear, Give them a warning, but if they don't come out, don't hesitate to use force, he said. You mean I can pound them? Hot John asked. Yes, you can pound them, Osbert replied. Hot John hit his mallet against the car's side three times. Get out here, or I'm coming in to get ya. You don't want to mess with a big guy like me. The door slid open. A man in a cowboy costume stepped out, his beard clumped together. The whiskers twisted around themselves in oily knots. His sallow gray skin suggested he wasn't well. The eyes sunk back in their sockets, corroborating the suggestion. Why, Jonathan, it's Blaze, Osbert said. We thought we'd lost you. We thought you were dead. What happened? <laughs> Blaze said, exposing the small purple stump, all that remained of his tongue, after Andrus cut it out. Osbert gasped, then snapped his jaw shut to protect his own mouth. Blaze's eyes drifted away as he kicked some dirt on the smoldering fire. Osbert put his hand on his old friend's shoulder. I apologize for my reaction, he said. I knew what happened, but I'd never pictured how it would appear in three-dimensional space. Quite gory, but compelling to the academic mind. May I have a closer look? Blaze let his jaw hang on its hinge. Osbert shined his flashlight in his mouth, lighting his cheeks up like a jack-o'-lantern. He pulled the dusty old cowboy over to a rock pile, then grabbed his shoulders guiding him down onto the found furniture. Jonathan, give me the food. This man needs sustenance immediately. I'll take care of him. You go down to Andrus's office and find that box I told you about earlier and bring it back here. No dawdling. Maybe we should, uh, take a little break first. We've been going a couple days. Your stuff ain't going anywhere. A surprisingly salient point, my brutish chum. You can rest, but not for long. Dogboy lived here with us. This is the first place he'll look if he catches wind of us. We'll need to find another place to hide out while we gather more resources. Blaze jumped up, grabbed a stick off the ground, and scratched out a few letters. C-U-R-L. Osbert glanced over his shoulder as he finished. E-Y-W-O-R-L-D. Curly World? Osbert asked. That little amusement park over by Goodson University? What do they call it? The place where dreams come true, 
Hot John sang to the melody from the well-remembered radio jingle. Oh, yes, you know that park well, don't you? Osbert said to Blaze, who nodded. Brilliant! Who would think to look for the Guild of Thieves there? Rest up, gentlemen. We'll take this curly world, by force if necessary. Then, our real work begins. Chapter 2 Lights and Shadows His feet dangling over the ledge, Bronson Black watched over his city from the roof of Colta City General Hospital. He chewed a bite from the egg salad sandwich he'd bought before going on patrol. The summer heat didn't subside, even at this late hour, so he decided to take a break and eat it before it spoiled. He took the last bite, then lowered the cheap Halloween dog mask over his face. The floppy dog ears stapled to his mask tickled his human ones. The mask was old when he found it among his father's things. His many adventures since becoming a superhero hadn't done it any favors. The amaranthine paint along either side had worn to a dull purple. Fine cracks ran along the mask where it rested across the bridge of his nose. The mask lacked beauty, but his father's name penciled on the back guaranteed he'd never replace it. The world disappeared a wash of orange, then a vision. The rooftop he was standing on. A man crept up behind him, laughed, pushed him over the edge. He called these visions flash-forwards. They let him see a small distance into the future. His powers hadn't worked right since he defeated the Guild of Thieves that past July. When they did work, he considered it a small blessing. Not luck, but something like it. The click of the rooftop door closing brought him back to the present. He crawled along the ledge, scooting his stomach along the concrete, until he reached an HVAC unit in the shadows. The man from his vision scuttled across the rooftop carrying a purse that clashed with his outfit in both color and class. He squatted down, then dumped the contents out onto the blacktop. The man picked through the pile like a monkey picking through his partner's fur, holding each object close to his eyes as he judged its worth. He placed the objects he found worthy next to him in a neat pile, but the objects he rejected got chucked over the ledge. Dogboy crept through the shadows, around the rooftop until he found himself behind the man. He reached into his pocket pulling out a few wee glimmers, small theatrical props magicians used to distract the audience. Dogboy used them to distract the crooks. He launched the pellets at the man's feet. They hit the ground, sparking, then a loud pop accompanied by a bright flash. The man fell back, shattering a bottle of Chanel No. 5 in the keep pile by his feet. The perfume splattered onto the man's thick wool pants. Another wee glimmer went off, igniting his soaked, smelly leg. The chemicals burned up in a second, which was all the dry material needed to get it started. The man howled, hopping up and down, smacking the flames with his bare hands to little success. Dogboy untied his cape, whirling it around and smacking the man's legs to smother the flames. Lay down, he said. He beat at the flames, maybe a little harder than he needed to, until he'd smothered them, leaving the reek of burnt hair in his nose. The dogboy, the man said spitting little white flecks out the sides of his mouth as he did. We've been looking for you. He got up on one knee, then offered Dogboy his hand. You sure you have the right dog? I come from a big litter, Dogboy said, standing his ground as the man took a step toward him. Don't remember your old pal Joe? The man asked. After everything we done for you, everything Andrus done for you, we all seen what you've done to him, you nasty little brat. Dogboy recognized the man now. He'd seen him rob somebody on South Fifth Street his first week in the city. 
He'd even seen him in the abandoned subway tunnels the Guild of Thieves used as a base. Joe looked different now, though. Dirtier. Hungrier. Meaner. Andrus was a jerk, Dogboy said. If you don't turn yourself in right now, you're going to end up in jail right next to him. Dogboy wasn't sure what he felt first. The foot flying into his stomach or the orange energy shooting out from his palm. He didn't summon his weird power, and no matter how hard he focused, he couldn't stop its surge. The beam hit his assailant, pushing him back toward the ledge. I can't stop, Dogboy said. Grab onto something. The warning came too late. Joe tumbled over the edge. For Andrus, he screamed as he fell. With the danger gone, the energy stopped flowing out. Dogboy peeked over the ledge. He winced behind his mask. The man lay on the sidewalk, seven stories below, his legs bent skyward, his body facing the hospital. Dogboy lit down the stairs, bursting out the side door, then plowing into a young nurse, out for a break. You, she said. Look, that goon was carrying you away by the time I came back with a guard. Please don't hurt me. I tried to help you, I swear. Dogboy recognized her from a previous battle against Hot John, the big man with the mallet hand. His first instinct said to tell her she didn't have anything to apologize for. He was supposed to be saving her, after all. Before he got the words out, he reconsidered, deciding to use her unfounded fears to his advantage. I'm not going to hurt you, but you gotta do me a favor first. There's this guy I knocked off the roof around the corner. Oh my god, she said, backing away. You threw somebody off the roof? No, no. Well, kinda. He was coming after me, and my powers, well... They're unpredictable. Come on, you gotta help him. He might be dead already. She nodded, and Dogboy led her around the corner. They both knelt down beside the thief. He was still breathing, but barely. Up close, Joe looked even worse than he had from above. There were cuts on his hands and face, a small divot in his skull, and some yellow teeth laying on the sidewalk beside him. Looks like there could be some spinal damage, the nurse said. This is way out of my wheelhouse. Let me run inside and grab Dr. Humboldt. She's the best orthopedic surgeon in the state. I should knock her out and get out of here before she calls the cops, Dogboy thought. It was one of those sudden, insane thoughts that cross everybody's minds on occasion. The kind of thoughts that are so against one's nature, he's left wondering if it was actually his thought at all. The solution was straightforward, but it would make him a dreadful hero. Heroes do what's right, not what's easy. Well, go find her, lady, Dogboy said. I'll stay with him until you come back. As the nurse left, Dogboy peered up and down the street to check for police. He felt something tapping the plastic tip of his canvas sneakers. Joe shot him a wide, bloody, toothless grin from the ground. Don't matter what you do, mutt, he said. Guild'll find you. Guild'll gut you like an animal, being that's what you are. Dogboy felt a chill down his spine. The kind people say come to you when somebody steps on your grave. How many of you guys are left? I saw cops take tons of you guys in. Nuh-uh. Not gonna tell you. It's a surprise. The man chuckled, spraying congealed blood across his beard. He's right over here, doctor, the nurse said from around the corner. She spoke loudly, or at least louder than she needed to. Dogboy took it as a sign that he needed to leave. He knelt down and whispered in the man's ear. You tell your guild, or what's left of it that if they come after me, this is what happens. Scared, child? Yeah, but only that I'll catch something from you. 
Dogboy slipped behind a nearby car as the doctor knelt down to examine the thief. He waved to the nurse, who strolled over by the car. She leaned on the trunk, then pulled out her phone to look busy. He'll live, she whispered. A few broken ribs and a vertebra thrown out of alignment. Consider us even. If I see you around here again, I'm calling the cops to cash in the reward. I didn't mean to hurt him, you know, Dogboy said. I believe you, kid, she said, looking down at him like a disappointed parent. Funny thing is, I think that scares me a little more. Dog Boy, Den of Thieves Written by Bill Meeks Narrated by Nathan Beatty Chapter 1 Fortune's Fool Concrete isn't a good material for a bed. It makes great roads, swimming pools, and nuclear power plants, but it doesn't make a good bed. Somebody forgot to tell Bronson Black. He laid flat on his back, in the middle of an outdoor basketball court, staring up at Arthur Tillman. Arthur was taller than Bronson. He was stronger. Most importantly, he was older and meaner. So you can handle a little defense, asked Arthur. He dribbled a beat-up basketball near Bronson's head. Don't be a jerk. I'll go home. Oh, you hear your mommy calling you for nub-nubs? Arthur circled Bronson. He bounced the ball to the right of Bronson's head. Thump. Then to the left. Thump. Bronson jumped up and backed away from the boy. Bronson stood still. He could feel Arthur moving behind him. Maybe I should turn around. Arthur flicked the back of Bronson's ear. Okay, I guess we're doing this. Bronson turned around to face Arthur. Arthur's fist met Bronson's head on the way around. Bronson's legs went limp, and he fell down on the concrete for a second time. He didn't want to let out how much it hurt, and he did his best not to cry. Arthur leaned down and brought his face a few inches from Bronson's. His breath smelled like old potato chips and bubblegum. Didn't see that coming, Arthur asked. Oh, little baby better not cry. Don't cry, little baby. Does little baby need his mommy? Is that what you want? Yes, then. Yes, I need my mommy, said Bronson. Arthur chuckled. Sure, I'll bet she has a bottle all warmed up for you. Arthur dribbled his ball back across the court and took a shot. Bronson was 13, practically an adult in kid years, but he was old enough to know that losing a fight meant his life was over at school. He whimpered on the couch while his mother cleaned him up. She took some gauze and poured some alcohol on top. Bronson's father was working at the dining room table. He used a dirty handkerchief to polish a crystal ball. I wasn't doing nothing, Bronson said. I didn't even look at him. I've got rotten luck. Bronson's father pulled his reading glasses down and looked at Bronson in the eyes. Son, he said, what do I always tell you? Bronson knew his father wouldn't let that one slide. He sat up, sniffled, and parroted back the familiar words. We, we make our own luck. Bronson's father smiled as he came and sat down beside him. That's right, we make our own luck, both good and bad. But I didn't do anything. I know, buddy, his father said. It's not your fault. You need to remember that bad luck didn't have anything to do with it. People's decisions caused this. You decided to go there, and he decided to act like a jackass. Duncan Oliver Black, watch your language, Bronson's mother said. His dad chuckled. Luck is an excuse, and when you start making excuses, you stop looking for solutions. We make our own luck, Bron. Never forget it. 
Yes, Dad, Bronson said. He sat up and cleaned the tears off his cheek with his sleeve. Can I go to my room? I want to forget this whole crummy day. Duncan put his crystal ball back in the leather trunk, where he kept all of his magic gizmos. It was covered in stickers with the names of exotic locales like Jakarta, Amsterdam, and Poughkeepsie. He closed the lid and locked the rusty padlock. I've been thinking, he said. I'm on the road so much, we haven't had a family day out in months. A family day out? Like to where? Bronson asked. Well, I guess that's up to you. Within reason, Mom said. Within reason, Duncan repeated. Bronson considered the options. They could see a movie. He'd always wanted to visit the Native American reservation and learn how to do a rain dance. Then it hit him. He knew what he wanted to do. We can go up to Colta City. I can practice my skating in Dixon Park, and we can get some hot dogs at a street cart, and then we can visit Uncle Randolph. Bronson had never been to Colta City, and he'd never met his Uncle Randolph. When he thought about his uncle, he pictured a guy who had tons of crazy city adventures at coffee shops and delis. No, Duncan said. I don't know if your Uncle Randolph is up for visitors on such short notice. He has a tiny apartment. It isn't set up for 13-year-olds. Anyway, from what I hear, Colta City isn't the safest place these days. They have a lot of problems with street crime up there. Aw, oh, Dad! You can get more information about Dog Boy Adventures at dogboyadventures.com and you can follow us on Twitter at Dog Boy Books. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.